This is The Uncharted Life with Jacob Lyles. Hello, my friends. This is this podcast recently passed a pretty important milestone. We've received our 1,000th listener, and that is huge. Um, I am also a writer. I've written blog posts for oh, over 10 years now, and I can say that much more is asked of a podcast listener than a blog reader. A blog reader is reading... You know, it might take only a minute or two, uh, or it might take longer, depending on how big the post is, but they're reading a highly polished artifact, um, usually, that um, I've worked on for many hours before putting out. But a podcast, it's a long conversation. It's uh, in-depth. It's vulnerable. You're getting the raw me and my guest, unpolished, having a conversation. Uh, it has ums and ahs in it. I'm nervous. I have microphones on me. And I don't know where the conversation is going to go. It doesn't always go where I want it to go or where I anticipate it might go. Unlike a blog post, um, I often find it a little bit embarrassing to, to launch a podcast. So thanks for being on this journey. Uh, it hasn't been easy, but I think it feels pretty good. It feels like I am creating something that is a little bit more out of my control. It's scary but it feels meaningful. And my ultimate goal is just to create podcasts that have impact, that have the kind of impact that other people's podcasts have had on me. Uh, I'm a huge fan, like I've said, of many uh, episodes that Krista Tippett um, and Tim Ferriss and uh, Jocko Willink and um, Russ Roberts have, have put together. They've some of them have just changed my mind and, and changed the way I approach the world. And if I can make podcasts of that quality, then I'll be quite happy. So this, this podcast is the second in a series of me just finishing up some audio I recorded when I took a trip through, through North Carolina in July. Uh, the first one was the previous episode with Matt English. And um, I believe I recorded both of these on the same day. I think I recorded this one first. Uh, with Derek, and then I swung by Matt's house. Um, so this episode is with Derek Radney, and I've talked to him before on the podcast. Uh, he's a Presbyterian minister and founder of Trinity Church Winston-Salem. Um, Derek and I went to college together, and I believe he graduated a year before me in 2004, and I graduated in 2005, uh, although don't hold me to that. Um, on this podcast, Derek and I talk like we like we always do. We always, since I, we've known each other, we've talked about um, life and God and the ultimate nature of reality and tried to puzzle that out a bit. Um, and we also talk about faith in this podcast. Uh, and then things get a little interesting. We get into current events a bit and we talk about how the church's moral teachings ought to influence politics, uh, which might be a little... Um, what do you call it? Timely for some of you. And lastly, we talk about the challenges of raising families and forming community in the modern world. So here's my conversation with Derek Radney, number two. I like to leave questions unresolved. <laughs> and let people just go wherever with them. 
Yeah, like there's this feeling I think that a lot of people have that when you have a question, you need to come to an answer. Mm -hmm. And I think I've learned the skill of like leaving things, uh, like leaving a question unresolved and just being, like letting it stick around and seeing how having that question in mind affects your life. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a good place to start. Okay. Um, in that, like my questions about um, the ultimate nature of reality, like, like I'm able to leave them unresolved, mm -hmm. which makes me feel a little bit like an outsider in most of the places I go. Yeah. I'm not a very good atheist and I'm not a very good Christian and I'm not a very good Buddhist. Well, maybe the Buddhists accept me yeah. most. Because uh, that's all about the journey. Yeah, they, they, they're, they're just a lot less dogmatic than most other re religions that I know of. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're more comfortable with letting people like not know what they believe. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a place for that um, around, nearby, inside Christianity as well. I mean, no Christian knows everything yet and is still on a journey, so to speak, right? There's the classic, like, we believe in order to understand. So hmm. we, we don't fully understand what it means that we, we worship a God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's, there's mystery there, and, and there is more to understand about that. It's not complete fog. But we'll never fully arrive at what that means. So I think so, there's... So we believe in order to understand? Yeah. Faith-seeking understanding. It's like a classic um, way of talking about the Christian life. Um, so it, it's sort of like uh, in a, a human relationship, you know, um, you, tr you, you have a trust relationship with someone, maybe a father and a son. And the son trusts and believes in the father and follows the father and listens to the father and learns from the father and grows an understanding of who that father is. And when he's 25, he has a very different idea of the world and who his father is and what it means to live faithfully um, than he did when he was six. But, um, you know, that's, there's still a trust relationship that serves kind of as the foundation for the growing and understanding, right? Uh, or, or any friendship is that way. You know, you could have two people who you have to start with some level of trusting the person, you know, opening up to them, them opening up to you, you know, giving and receiving. And you dive deeper into the relationship where you get to know the person more and more. And the Christian life is that way, too. It's not like you have to have all understanding before you can say, OK, I believe. Um, certainly there's some understanding that's got to be there. But. I think it's like St. Augustine's point is that it fundamentally begins with trust. Hmm. Um, yeah, it reminds me of, uh, so in, in Jordan Peterson's uh, sort of um, meme plex, if you, if you take his expressed worldview, which is sort of composed of all the biblical lectures, say, I think he gets most of his main points stuck in somewhere in the biblical lectures. Like one of the things that he talks about is like believing that existence is good or worthwhile, like being completely arbitrary. Uh, like to have that belief, you sort of have to assume it. And then, and but that will affect the way you act. Like then you act in a way as if that were true. And 
and it changes your experience of reality. Mm -hmm. And it changes what you're able to understand. It opens up possibilities of meaning that aren't otherwise there unless you assume that to begin with. He, he attributes this idea to Kierkegaard. He calls it a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't read Kierkegaard, so yeah. I have it third hand. Um, but that's... I dabbled in, in Kierkegaard in, uh, in undergrad. I would not in any way claim to be an expert, but that definitely fits with what I know of him, which is to sort of to understand Christianity, but really to understand mo most sort of ways of being, you have to start with some sort of trust. And that um, if you don't try to understand, for instance, Christianity from that position, and you're sort of critiquing it from the outside like Hegel was, you're misunderstanding it. Is his point. But but why should I why should I have that trust? Like when I meet a friend mm -hmm. and I want and I end up getting to know him and I end up trusting him so that I can get to know him, uh, why did I decide to trust him and not somebody else? And like if I'm approaching Christianity, like why am I giving it that trust and not mm -hmm not doing something else. Sure. Uh, well, I think that you, you don't have to fully give yourself over in every way to trust in order to begin to understand it. I think this is sort of a critique of modernism, I think, which sort of assumes some objective starting point that we're all working from. And then we sort of build upon that, uh, what's reasonable. And I think this is a sort of different way of approaching knowledge, which is that we have to sort of take a few things as given and then understand the world from those starting points. I think it's possible. I don't think it's easy, but I, I think it's possible to step inside another person's view of the world and to sort of, okay, for the sake of argument, let's assume what you're assuming and let's try to see the world from that perspective. And then I think it, that makes it possible to begin to sort of weigh which faith assumptions end up being reliable. Um, and so, uh, some people call this like presuppositional knowledge, right? Or um, epistemology. You know, you have to, to, what are the basic assumptions of, of secular humanism? What are the basic assumptions of Buddhism? What are the basic assumptions of Christianity? And let's, from those assumptions, try to look at the world and think and study and work out questions of meaning and morality and existence and uh, origins and all that stuff. And then which one of those fits with the world the best, so to speak. And so I think, I think with Christianity, um, you know, you have to step inside it and then begin to say, does this make sense of what we know of history and all these other things? Um, so I'm not sure there's a, I think the best case is that Christianity explains the world best once you do that. But mm. to your question, well, why should I trust Christianity and not something else? Well, I, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't explore all those other relationships, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I think I hear you saying is that like there's this, um, there's sort of a, an assumption in modernism that there's like some objective um, base mm -hmm. that we all have from which we explore the world. Yeah. And that's just kind of not true. Like there's there's some sort of arbitrary set of concepts that that we're, we're taking on um, and seeing the world through. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, in order to really explore a different set of things, uh, you can't, you can't explore that from the outside. Right. Like you, you sort of have to try it on and yeah. see what the world looks like from there. That's right. And see if it makes more sense to you or feels better or like creates more of what you want in the world. Um, yeah, is there like a coherence internally 
and a correspondence sort of externally. And so that's maybe one way of thinking about it. Well, like like scientific, like let's say some sort of like scientific atheism, right? Uh, or scientific scientific atheist materialism, let's yes. say. Like it seems to have a pretty good correspondence with the physical world, and then, but what it's missing is that it makes me it, it feels really nihilistic, and it seems to miss. Um, it just feels bad. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not that it's not predictive. Like it seems to match the world pretty well. And a lot of times I think um, if I'm feeling bad in this perspective, like it's my fault. Like I need to get my psychology straight with the truth, where the truth is something like scientific atheist materialism that there's not really any meaning, but we can sort of learn models of how the world works that are more predictive. And like I am some machine that's pretty deterministic, um, that's having experiences that I can't control, and um, and, it, and maybe I think like by wanting something better than that, like I'm babying myself, like I'm saying, oh, you can't handle the truth, um, right? And uh, but I mean, I do want something better than that. Yeah. So I mean, am I am I just weak by not accepting the mechanistic? meaninglessness of all things mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that's you're putting your finger on some of the tensions within that that worldview so to speak i think the other others would be things like morality what mm -hmm. is the basis for morality or does it change the way we sort of intuitively think of morality which is you know we we kind of don't do certain things because it kind of functionally works better on a social level if we don't do them um, but that's kind of a different way of thinking about morality than i think most people operate with um, and then the other thing I would say about that is that secular atheistic materialists, they, they tend to sort of act like they're not assuming anything and that, um, that they've sort of, they're holding on to the, the baseline things that are obvious or uh, just objectively true and they don't assume anything. But the reality is that worldview does assume a lot of things that can't be proven, like the continuity of of nature, for instance, that it always operates and always has operated on a certain set of laws or principles. Um, the, the reliability of memory, for instance, the reliability of our senses to interpret reality. All, all those things are, I think, great assumptions, but they are, in fact, assumptions you can't prove. And in one sense, you could say they are their faith that you start with, and then you reason from them, which is fine. I'm, I'm totally comfortable with that. But it's not so different than the, the Christian who assumes the existence of a creator uh, that creates, for instance, universal principle uh, laws of nature that continue, um, or that our senses are reliable or something like that. And then, so, I mean, it, it's fine. We just have different starting principles, but it's frustrating when people don't acknowledge their assumptions that cannot be proven. I think the, um, like, I'm kind of okay with a lot of the assumptions you need to make the like w what I'm here calling scientific atheist materialism, I should just call it materialism and start stop uh, elaborating um, to make the materialist worldview make sense. Like those uh, those assumptions of the reliability of memory and like, the continuity of nature, like they seem okay. Uh, the ones that I think the things in the world that that start to make me question are um, like more of the subjective phenomenon, like for. In the materialist worldview, the consciousness doesn't have much of a role to play. Like maybe, maybe it doesn't exist. M maybe it's not actually a thing. And um, because you, 
or, or it's, it's some epiphenomenon of underlying physical processes. And like consciousness seems mysterious and important and like sort of fundamental to how I experience the world. And so getting, so in, in the worldview, if I try on the worldview of a Buddhist or an existentialist, someone that's like much more consciousness first, like that, that seems to make as much sense to me um, or certain kinds of sense that seem to be missing from the materialist view. Although the materialist view also makes sense to me. But once I'm, once I have like two different viewpoints that I, uh, that, that both have make sense to me, then that kind of like un, opens Pandora's box and like, why not explore all possible, uh, worldviews from that point. So it kind of like sort of pulls the rug out from under, uh, my confidence that, that there's like, that there, I used, that I used to have, that there was one right way to view the world. Mm -hmm. And then like why Christianity, uh, from my view, it's something like, I like the optimism of it. Mm -hmm. And I do want to believe existence is good. And of all the metaphysical, of all, of all the metaphysical structures that have been passed down, that are believed by wide numbers of people that have some history to them, like Christianity is the one that seems most optimistic to me. And it seems like sort of happiest in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so like trying, like sort of, sort of dancing with Christian topics and reading Christian authors, like it, it's, uh, it changes my mind and my emotional response in a way that feels good. Mm -hmm. mm. That's what I'm up to. Well, I certainly agree that it's the best news. I mean, it's definitely the happiest to put it in your terms. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, that's definitely true. Uh, which is why, you know, it's people have charged it with being sort of the opiate of the masses, right? Well, it's sort of just positive or it's, it's what you want to be true. It doesn't make it actually true. But I, I think that's why for me, I had to, when I started getting exposed to all sorts of different ways of, of seeing the world in college, I had to start digging into them and say, okay, well, maybe Christianity isn't right. You know, um, how can I claim to say this is the only, this is true and the others aren't or this is exclusively true, um, unless I've really looked into the other ones. Um, and so through that process, and I feel like as I've continued to, to learn what it means to be a Christian and who, um, who God is as revealed in Jesus Christ, um, it, it seems to continually work in a more comprehensive way than anything else I, I've ever encountered. Uh, and that's not a knockdown drag out argument but it's pretty compelling. Um, the way that, for instance, scripture um, helps me understand myself, uh, helps me understand others, helps me understand what I see going on around me, you know, whether that's politics or, you know, relationships or um, even, even scientific discoveries about the way the world works. I mean, it, it, I think Christianity has a comprehensive explanation for the world. It doesn't mean that I know everything because I'm a Christian, but it means that uh, everything that we encounter seems to fit into what the Bible tells us the, the world's like and what history is like and what God is doing in the world. So um, that's why I think understanding Christianity as faith-seeking understanding is so important because I don't think that it's um, 
it's easy to sort of talk about this, um, you know, it, to become a Christian is to accept all this set of beliefs. And once you understand that you're a Christian, because you're constantly diving in further, understanding what those things mean. Uh, you don't ever sort of get to the bottom and then say, okay, there it is. That's the, to that's the sum total of understanding of how the world is. Um, you're, you're kind of pressing further in all the time, especially in the inner relations of things, you know. I think that's what scares people about dogmatic faiths or dogmatic religions is that they will be handed some set up, some limited set of beliefs that are supposed to describe the world. Mm -hmm. And then in order to, um, they, in order to, to follow those, like they'll have to betray themselves as they see evidence that contradicts it. Like they'll, because the world is complicated and their system is simple, that they'll have to betray them themselves or lie to themselves to stay within the system. Right. And uh, and so, like your way of of speaking about it sounds like better in that you're saying like you'll never really completely understand everything, but it's it's like a deepening over time. Right. Um. And, and which describes to me like what life is like. Yeah. And I, and I would say that's actually the historic. Christian understanding of itself. It, uh, now that said, the Christian Jesus, for instance, has a huge critique of what the church is always being pulled into, which you know you can call it a lot of different things. You could call it religion, or you could call it dogmatism, or, or something like that. Which is there's a way to turn Christianity, just like so many other religions, into an oppressive, restrictive, um, self-righteous sort of uh, movement or experience, right? And that's where you get um, violence against people who question the authorities or who don't quite fit into um, what that group of Christians says is, is faithful um, that is always going beyond scripture, right? And so like, if you look at Jesus encountering the Pharisees, they're, they've sort of built up all these traditions that end up making it impossible for the average person to be a faithful follower of God and ends up oppressing the poor, right? And this, this is a massive mm -hmm. injustice. And so there's Jesus is sort of, woe to you, and you are hypocrites. You are distorting what I'm about. Um, and then you see throughout church history, there's always sort of um, seasons where the church kind of drifts back into what we, we use the word legalism, you know, sort of erecting laws that go beyond what God has told us um, in, a, in a sense to try to sort of build up our own sense of moral superiority mm -hmm. and that always excludes and is oppressive. And so, you know, there's the classic narratives about the church suppressing science, for instance, you know, and you kind of hear these tales of, uh, I think some of them are a little bit overdone and don't always have all the facts, right. But, you know, suppressing scientific discoveries in the late middle ages and uh, early enlightenment times, um, it, it's seen as a threat to what we know from scripture. And so we're going to shut this down. Right. And, or, or in like America during the 19th century, like mm -hmm. sort of the more fundamentalist kinds of, yes. of, uh, Protestants being against evolution and That's right. things like that. And, and I've been that as well. And so I'm not, this is not meant to be a criticism of everybody else. I'm, I've also experienced my own legalisms and the further I press into the Christian faith though, uh, the more these things get reconciled and there's, there's on evolution, for instance, you know, I think there are, um, there's been a big war over what is seen as a threat to fundamental Christian doctrines, uh, in the theory of evolution. I think the farther that 
Christians have pressed into Scripture and into what science is telling us about what we believe about the age of the earth and about the development of the human species, we're saying, okay, these actually aren't in conflict in the way we thought they were. Um, and uh, now there are definitely still Christians who think they're in conflict, but I, I think um, that's mainly because people have adopted a certain method of reading Genesis that's problematic um, and isn't historically how Genesis has been read and doesn't account for the different types of genre the Bible contains, right? It's sort of adopted a sort of modern literalism that's actually pretty new and not very old. But the point is, as Christians press into what has God told us in Scripture and what are we learning through other fields of, of knowledge, whether that's science or sociology or psychology, uh, in my mind, we continue to learn more. Mm. And um, things become more clear, not more at odds the further we press into this. And sometimes that means there's tensions, and, and sometimes that tension goes on for decades. But um, but eventually, I think we, we come to resolve and have a better sense of what God is doing and what his world is like. Yeah, I, I like that uh, scripture you were alluding to right, where Jesus was saying, like, woe to the Pharisees, because I think one of the metaphors he uses to describe them is something like a, a whitewashed grave. Yeah. So it's on the, on the outside, it's pretty... But on the inside, it contains, you know, decaying flesh. Yeah. Um, and I think what he's getting at by that is that his ideal would be probably something more like the opposite, uh, or, or maybe not quite that. But but what is on the inside being pure and good, like what your intention towards the world is, like that's what really matters. Well, and alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the and living. Yeah, living. That's the key thing. And, and there's there's like a call to have like like a like a pure heart, a heart of love, um, that I think is like the good Christian ideal to have, and um, uh, that is non-Pharisaic. Yeah, it's the opposite of of being Pharisaic. Yeah. Now, I say all, all that that I've just said doesn't mean there's no, quote, like dogma in the Christian faith. There is dogma. There is doctrine. Mm -hmm. There is right teaching. Um, but we're always pressing further in to fully understand what that might be. What does it mean that we confess that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean that he is fully God and fully man um, in one person? What does it mean that Christ atoned for our sins? I mean, it takes something like the Apostles' Creed, this classic universally accepted formulation of the Christian faith. Uh, here's what Scripture is teaching, you know. Well, we're, we're constant—that is a boundary. I mean, that's drawing a circle. You can't deny that and still be within the Christian faith. But how we hold that, you know, matters. Is it, does it, are we holding it in such a way that it's leading to oppression— and injustice, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be human and to be made in God's image? Well, it doesn't mean love will just take us wherever we want to take our lives because you know, uh, there's a way of thinking about Christianity is about love that essentially means the individual gets to determine his own nature and his own way of being. And that's not Christianity. There are boundaries to how we live out as image bearers. Like there, there's some telos of what, that's it, right. there's a telos. What, it, what it means to be made in the image of God. That that's right. Uh, if people are feeling pulled outside of that, then that's right. Then that's not um, then that's that's not correct. That's right. So, like, we believe that God ha loves us 
and he made us in his image to represent him. And there's a particular end that we're aimed at. And so love of his creatures is a desire for their good, which can only be fully met if they're pursuing their proper ends. So, so love doesn't just mean universal acceptance of whatever humans want to do. It means a desire for the good. It doesn't just mean good vibes either. Like there's there's some sort of like wisdom baked into it that uh, like you have to know like what the good for the thing that you, that you're loving is and aim them at that even if it's sometimes difficult. That's right. And painful even. Um, And yeah. And so that, that's where, I mean, I want to be kind of balanced in how I say all this because as much as I want, I want to say Jesus is against a dead religion that oppresses sometimes that language often of love often gets sort of hijacked for a more you know um expressive individualism that sort of the individual determines his his direction to life and god just affirms whatever you want and that's that's not true either Hmm. he's he is god after all can can i ask you about um what's probably a big tension that people in the world care about, mm-hmm. and especially people outside of Christianity care Definitely. about today, mm-hmm. sure. is a lot of people are very concerned with, um, I would say, uh, like gay rights mm-hmm. in America, and they yeah. see like the church's um, attitude being denying their uh, way of being, right. or not having space for for gay people to like direct them to, to have to, to direct them towards better lives yeah. and, and how, how does your ministry or how, how do you think about that in your ministry and mm-hmm. and what's the appropriate way for Christians to approach that yeah well that probably is one of the biggest tensions or, or maybe issues that on the conversation we've been having this is sort of one of the obvious things that gets raised well what does that mean for gay people for instance and um, I mean, it's a really sensitive subject, so I, I do want to be careful in how I yeah, I feel, feel talk a, about this. A little bad for putting you on the spot. Well, but, that's okay. But I, I think you know, we're kind of talking around this issue, and a lot of my listeners would probably be like, "Hey, why don't you? Yeah, why don't you pop that question?" Yeah. So, well, what makes it so hard is like the terms that get used are not universally agreed upon, and so people might easily hear different things than what I'm trying to say. So I want to be careful in how I speak on this. Um, Let me just start by saying along the lines of what I was getting at before, you know, God doesn't just bless however we want to use our lives. Uh, the, The Bible fundamentally teaches that we've been created by God. We belong to him as his creatures. He's created us for certain ends and purposes, and uh, we're built in a certain way, and so we're designed to live in the world in particular ways. Um, and then as, as Christians, we also believe that because we've sinned and, and Christ died for us, we've been sort of purchased back for God, right? And so Paul says, like, uh, we belong to God and we are not our own. So we've got to glorify God in our bodies. So this that's like a fundamental belief about Christians is that we don't own our lives. We don't get to determine everything about what our lives are going to be for. And so part of being a Christian is turning from and repenting uh, from ways that are not the proper use of our lives and, and in particular our bodies. And sex is one of those areas where everyone, all Christians are called to, um, 
use their bodies in proper ways and deny certain desires we have sexually. Um, so, so any Christian um, has to refrain from having sex with people that is not their spouse, right? I mean, that's, that's a fundamental idea about sex and marriage uh, that God's designed us to give ourselves to one person and that spouse is uh, someone that we sort of covenant to be committed and faithful to. So when a man and a woman join their lives together, they are oriented towards one another and then outwardly towards new life and hospitality. And so sex is not for just personal gratification or self-fulfillment. Uh, in fact, that's sort of kind of low down on the list. It's primarily about bonding our binding our lives together, bonding with someone such that we're opening ourselves up to being hospitable to others, to new life. Um, so any any sexual desire outside of that, even for a married person, has to be denied. Has to be said, no, like I can't use my body that way. And so there's a sort of self denial, uh, um, putting to death sinful desires that all persons, married or not, have to do if you're a Christian. And for those people who find themselves attracted to people of the same sex, um, or you could say, you know, for gay Christians, right? Um, they're, they're not permitted to give themselves to people of the same sex, uh, and they're not permitted to form a sort of bond with someone, maybe you could say gay marriage, um, that is of the same sex, because that's not what sex is for. It's not just two people to enjoy one another's. Uh, it's to actually be open to new life. Um, now, what, what all that has to do with sort of civil rights in, in our country, that's a totally, I think that's a separate question. Um, it's related, but it's separate, and um, it's much more complicated. And I think Christians might come down on in different places on exactly what sorts of political rights should be given to people to do that. And I'm, I'm not as committed to particular answers in that question. Um, I think a case can be made that marriage it, um, at, between a man and a woman is a public good and that there are reasons why the government wants to um, encourage that sort of relationship, you know, giving tax incentives and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, that's not my primary concern, you know, and the fact that we have gay marriages legal in this country um, is not something that I think is worth fighting over, <laughs> honestly, um, at this point. Maybe it wasn't ever uh, worth fighting over. Huh. Yeah, it makes me think, um, makes me want to think of, like, makes me want to ask you what's the appropriate relationship between morality and law. Mm. Like if you believe in a certain metaphysical worldview that entails a certain morality like Christianity, like what is your responsibility towards putting that into law? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. That's also, that's an incredibly complicated question. And Christians are debating that all the time. I recently was reading a book by a guy named James K.A. Smith called Awaiting the King. And it's one of the better things I've read on what we call public theology or political theology. They're, they're slightly different but related um, aspects of theology. But um, I would just, maybe to try to boil it down, I would say 
just because something's immoral doesn't mean it should be illegal, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can think of that most people would agree are immoral, but we don't want to sort of make laws against them and start penalizing people or getting the government involved in and dealing with some sort of restorative dimension to that situation. So, um, you know, you, you live in a neighborhood and your neighbor, every time he sees you, you know, he, he says, you know, I hate you, you're ugly, you're a terrible person. Well, that's not, a, that shouldn't be illegal. Um, it, it's not nice, it's not loving, but it's not illegal. Now, if he starts threatening you and, and there's a sort of step up in the level of uh, violence that's potentially going to take place, we might make some types of speech illegal where there might be fines or restraining orders that can be put in place, right? Um, same would go with lying, right? It's not illegal to lie in the vast majority of life situations, but there's certain types of lying that is illegal. You know, you can't falsely um, represent yourself in certain settings without there being legal consequences. You can't be in court under oath and lie without there being legal consequences. And I think that's good. So we make distinctions all the time about things that are immoral versus things that are illegal. And generally the standard is when we start talking about immoral things that have a public impact, right? Or that um, warrant intervention by the government whose job is in part to protect people from harm then we start making laws about those. Um, I've also heard it said that the less of a consensus there is about what's moral in a society, the more laws you have to have. And that to me shows that we're, we're sort of in a fragmented age because increasingly people want to make everything a matter of law. And it's sort of a power move. It's like, I want, I want my morals to be enforced upon all people because I, I recognize there's no longer the consensus maybe that I used to feel there was. Um, so the increase of law has to do, I think, in part with the decrease in consensus. Yeah, so if maybe, maybe if you think that 90% of people agree with your morality, you don't feel the need to go and get, the, get a law passed. But if you feel that 55% do, right. it might be the right time to go ahead and pass that law because you might slip down to 45 in the future and not be able to pass it. That's right. Yeah, and that's why a lot of things that we make laws about now in the past were dealt with on a more communal and social level. We didn't have to make laws about them. People kind of trusted the community to take care of those. So if someone did something, there would be a sort of social ostracism that came about as a result of that, or neighbors would step in, or the church would step in, or there were others. There were other what we uh, call mediating social institutions that dealt with those things. And um, what we see now is everything has to be legislated, which I think is part of, it's probably a very small part, but part of the reason why we see such an increase in incarceration is that uh, everything's got to be turned into a, a legal issue now. Um, and so our courts are over, they're um, overworked, you know, there's just more cases than there, there is time for judges to deal with everything. And there's j jails are getting crowded and so on. Do you think it's a, do you think on net it's a bad thing or a good thing that the country is becoming more fragmented and more um, diverse in terms of belief and worldview? Mm. That's a tough question. I mean, there's, there's pros and cons and I'm not sure I have a, 
like a simple answer to that. Um, on one level, because of the things we're talking about right now, I think it's bad in that it is a threat, I think, to peace in some ways. Like when you throw so many different people together with so many different beliefs, that's an incredibly unique situation in the history of the world. And it always breeds a sort of tension and, and potentially violence. And there's a lot of questions about whether or not the center holds, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's a concern I have. On top of that, the lack of mediating institutions in the more fragmented society is leading to, I think, a big epidemic in things like loneliness and suicide. And I think we may have talked about that last time we were together. Um, and so that breakdown of community is sort of a crisis and people aren't, uh, it's affecting like the development of people as they grow up, like what place they feel like they have in society and visions for where they're going and what they do and how they fit in, like all that's bad. On the other hand, there's some real bad things about homogenous societies, you know, and uh, things like racism, uh, things of uh, every society that's very homogenous is always going to have a particular type of person that's historically oppressed, right? Some, whether it's a caste or it's an ethnic group or it's women, um, there's always kind of going to be a, an oppressed group. And sometimes pluralism exposes that and and face uh, forces communities to face the built-in injustices to their society. And so in that sense, it's a good thing that our country is becoming more diverse because it is helping us see a lot of the injustices of sort of the white American, Southern, you know, whatever culture we've had for, from Protestant, you know, for many years. Yeah, the... Um there's a philosopher, Rene Girard, who hypothesizes that every society basically needs a, a scapegoat, like someone, some oppressed group to externalize their problems onto, and that holds the majority together. Mm. Um, and he argues that Christianity was a big innovation and in that um, like they have the story of Christ who was scapegoated and persecuted but we know he was innocent. And so it's like this weird sort of uh, belief that deifies the, the scapegoat. And, um, and, and I guess the, the, his point in that was that the recognizing that was a way to try to fight against this um, tendency to, to need to make a human and like real living humans into that, into that scapegoat. Um, although I, I don't think it's always so successful. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, basically the church is always in danger of the pharisaical stuff we were talking about earlier when it forgets that it's sort of fundamental posture is one of repentance and confession. Um, in the historic Christian liturgies of worship that almost all Christians across the different denominations sort of utilized, confession was an essential you know, starting point in the worship service is very early on um, because the church is fundamentally a repenting community. It's recognized like we are the part of the, we are part of the world. We're not like this special group that's righteous and everybody else out there is the problem. It's like, we're the part of the world that's recognizing we are a problem. Mm. We're what's wrong with the world. And uh, you know, we also think there's stuff wrong with other people, but we're trying to own our stuff and that's why we're here we need that we need a savior we need someone who's going to redeem us we're going to need someone who's going to renew us um so that doesn't make us like this righteous remnant that's better than everybody it makes us the part of the world it's sort of like alcohol anonymous you know it's it's um 
you, you, the first thing you do is you say, Hey, I'm Derek and I'm an alcoholic. And like, that's, that's how you belong is if you can get up there and say, I've got this problem mm -hmm. and there's a lot of other alcoholics out there, but they're not at the meeting saying I've got a problem. So the ones in the meeting aren't any better than anybody else. They're just the ones who are finally starting to go, okay, I see it. I've got this issue. That's kind of how the church is supposed to be. It, it reminds me of Christ who sort of took responsibility for the sins of the world on himself. Um, and so maybe that's being Christ-like is, you know, you know um, sort of taking responsibility for our problems or for, for the, the darkness of the world around us. Maybe a little different because, I mean, the thing about Jesus is that he isn't guilty. Yeah. Um, so the difference is the world's locked in this good versus evil mentality. And every community sees themselves as the good guys and the other guys as the bad guys, right? Yeah. And it's always along different lines, you know? Uh, and so we're the righteous ones because we have these values or we do these things. And they're the bad guys because they have those values and they do those things. And Jesus, instead of sort of entering into that, choosing a side and then going violent against the other side to overcome them. He comes into the world as the only one who's actually innocent and allows all the violence and the good guy versus bad guy fighting that goes on to collapse on him. Right? So he comes into the world. He's got the religious Jews on one hand who don't like what he's saying and want to kill him. And the Roman empire, who's the, the secular power of the day, wanting him to get taken out too. And instead of coming in with an army, which he could have done, the, the crowds wanted to make him king, instead of raising up an army and just destroying everybody, he goes and he allows them to put him on trial. And even now in trial, Pontius Pilate says, you know, this guy's innocent. I don't find anything wrong with this guy. And they're like, kill him. You know, he's like, what if I get, I'll, I'll release him or this other criminal that you all know is a criminal. They're like, release that guy, you know? And so they kill Jesus. So it's, uh, it's a totally different way of establishing a kingdom. Yeah, he's, he's a weird guy. Totally. He sort weird. of subverts our it's expectations. Like yeah. It's like he's holy or something. Yeah. Well, in it, in it when you, that mention, mentioning that like reminds me that there's, there's been a lot of weird guys throughout history. And a lot of times they have this uh, in common with Christ and that they're peaceful and charismatic and, and, and they choose to be peaceful. Although, mm -hmm and not wield, wield their charisma in a, in a combative way. Like I think Gandhi is a, mm -hmm. another example of a yeah. Christ-like individual. I think there are similarities. The, the one big difference is that all those guys are showing everyone else the way to be, right? They're saying, this is how we should live. And if you live this way, then, you know, the world will be better. You'll, you'll be happier or whatever you'll face and you'll find enlightenment, so on and so forth. Jesus is actually saying that he, like he's doing it on our behalf and only, I mean, that's kind of the fundamental message of Christianity is first and foremost, Jesus is doing this as gift and only secondarily is it example to us. Whereas all those other guys, what they did doesn't accomplish anything in the world other than example. But, but we are in Christianity, you are supposed to imitate Christ, right? Yes. Okay. Only after you receive him as a gift. Hmm as something, someone who has done something you could never have done. Be, because he is divine. So like it's, it's sort of an acknowledgement that we can't do what he did. Yeah. He's a, he is atoning for sin and he is establishing a new order in the world that will come at the end of history and will be this whole new creation.
That's, that comes as a gift. And insofar as we receive that as gift, then and only then can we begin to sort of actually try to imitate and look forward to what that kingdom is going to be like in the way that we live now. Whereas Gandhi, as great as he is, you know, he's, he's showing us this way of peace, but it's, I mean, you've got to, you've got to do it. I mean, there, he didn't really change the world. He showed us a different way of being, but he didn't necessarily provide the resources to actually live that way. Whereas Jesus says, I'm sending my spirit to live in you. I'll always be with you. Now proclaim this kingdom, you know, live your life or you're pointing to that kingdom, but He's doing that because you you have to receive the kingdom. So I had an idea for a question. I thought I might want to get a little bit more personal. Stop me. Sure. No. If we go too far. Okay. Anything you're uncomfortable with. Um, I wanted to ask you what's what's been on your mind lately. What what have you been working on, um, or what have you been grappling with um, in in your ministry or in your life? Well, that's a great question. Um, one thing that's, and this may not really speak to your listeners much, but it, for me, it's a big thing that's going on in our community life. It's just the struggle a lot of parents are having, I think, to have rest in their life and raise kids well without feeling like they're all strung out and overworked. Um, so I've been, it's been on my heart a lot, and I've been praying towards this, and I think our elders have been talking about how we can better resource and help our parents, um, parent. <laughs> hmm. So that's one thing. Um, I think that's, that's an interesting topic for me because that's one of the things that scares me most about being a parent. I'm, I'm not a parent, but I, I'd like to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm scared that that entails like 10 years of being strung out and desperate, uh, like after you have the kid. Yeah. I mean, parenting is hard. That's it's, it's not, um, there's a reason why parents are stressed, but I think a lot of people are experiencing parenting in a way that's, it's, it's harder than it needs to be. Um, and I think it's because we don't really know, this is probably the, the thing behind the bigger issue behind your question is I think we don't know what to do with authority. I think authority is very much something Americans struggle with. We don't like authorities. It seems inherently oppressive because it's restricting my individual freedom, and and we sort of put ourselves at the center of the universe. You know, this is, this is July fifth, July yes. July sixth. It's a couple days after Fourth of July, where we celebrate like throwing off the yoke of authority. That's of right. It's baked the into king. the American culture, and so any any notion of authority inherently threatens oppression in our mind, because individuals are the highest authority. We are authorities unto ourselves. We have the right to do whatever we want with our lives, right? This goes back to what I said earlier. Christians, that shouldn't be so. Our lives are not our own. But we don't know what to do with authority. And so when we have authority, we are very um, wary of exercising it in a certain way that we feel like might be mean or oppressive in some way. And so like, we don't want to do that. So we want to be really nice and affirming, which are I mean, those are good things, <laughs> but with kids, uh, and actually even in the workplace, like, um, authority means you have responsibility to, you sort of have dominion over something and you have responsibility to cultivate it and direct it. And that requires leadership and that requires boundaries. And while we, we need to avoid controlling and manipulating in a way that 
degrades a person's dignity or harms them in some way, we do have to, if we have authority, direct people toward certain things. And parents have to learn that like you, and I'm speaking now as a Christian, like God has given you to your kids to show them how to live and to create structure for their life and um, to help them see that there are consequences for certain behaviors uh, that are negative and consequences for other behaviors that are positive. And you're helping them see the world and live in the world in that way. And uh, I think a lot of parents just, they feel like they're just always there to like affirm and comfort children at every step. And it, and at first when they're really young, it, it seems right. Cause I mean, they're like these helpless little dependent babies, you know, and that's good. You're just affirming them and responding to them. But, um, eventually if we don't start, um, impressing upon our children that they have to live into certain rhythms and structures and behaviors, then, uh, they become like little terrors who can't cope with anything unless everything centers around them. And then the parents are dealing with a child that's now older and is making more demands and has more sort of power, so to speak, to disrupt life, and they're exhausted trying to keep up with that. Um, so, yeah, that that uh, I, th- I think a lot of people have not had many examples of good authority. Oh, absolutely, yes. Like when I think of a, a lot, some of the bosses I've had, like they've fallen into the trap of either being too nice, right, or were like wanting too much to exercise their power yeah. and to feel it right. and, and not, not really in a calibrated way that's for all of our benefit. That's right. And, and I feel like a lot of people have also had parents that fall into one of those two buckets too. That's right. And, and, and so like exercising authority in a way that actually exercises it and um, for, for the greater good, but, but isn't, in just in service of their own ego and it sort of hits that middle ground is something that like we we need more examples of Mm -hmm. and the the person that i'm listening to that seems to get it best nowadays i think is jocko willink he has a podcast and he he was a uh, a navy seal commander and um that who fought in iraq and he has a podcast and i'm i'm enjoying him speaking on leadership because it just seems to have a lot of this balance to it where Mm -hmm. where um he definitely commands people. I mean, sometimes literally, sometimes mm-hmm. to their death. He, he's done that. But uh, on the other hand, he talks a lot about um, servant leadership and needing to set an example and asking of yourself what you ask of other people. And it seems to be um, he seems to be talking about a, a nice balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I kind of trust him because he's been in a difficult circumstance. Yeah. Yeah, I think you you basically just touched on all the key parts about parenting, but it's true of leadership in general. It's anyone who bears authority, which is, at least for Christians, we understand all authority is really derivative. It comes from God. So God sort of calls us or assigns us dominion or care, responsibility over some sort of small little thing, whether it's a workplace or, or a, a home. And we have that authority not to serve ourselves, not to just sort of have everyone serve us and kind of get our way selfishly, but to empower uh, little image bearers in the work that God's given his people and, and his creation. So it's, it's authority to serve, right? But it's still directive and it still sets boundaries. 
and um, and says, you know, you, you need to live this way. If you don't, there's danger. Like if you keep behaving this way, it will it could end in your destruction. It could harm other people. And so you can't, I'm not going to let you live that way without experiencing painful consequences in some way, right? And uh, when we fail to enforce those boundaries, we essentially train up and teach kids or maybe in, in an office, um, a workplace, that certain behaviors are okay until um, that ends up bringing destruction in some way. So that's, that's a big, to me, that's a big project. And I'm not, geez, I'm not saying I'm perfect to this at all um, as a father or as a pastor even. So but, is the project to like have better... Uh, better teachings or resources for parents in your community about how to like sort of strike the right balance between mm-hmm. between these two extremes yeah and it, it, in some ways I, I feel like a lot of it's just counseling like reflecting on why I'm doing what I'm doing and sometimes that's hard to do because I can sort of spell it out academically maybe as we're doing right here sort of in the in the realm of ideas but then you let go and you eat dinner with some people and you know, and we're watching how all the kids behave, and then how the parents are stepping in or not stepping in, or what they're doing, and that's when it becomes really hard. It's like, okay, how do I, how do I really nicely say, hey, like you see what you're doing right here? That's really not helpful. You know, um, here's here's what seems to be happening. Are you are you doing that kind of like really hands-on counseling? A work little with bit, parents? yeah, a little bit. But that sounds really cool. It well, it, it is cool. Uh, it's I'm, hard though because I'm also fairly young. I'm 35, almost 36, and a lot of the folks we walk with are close to to my age, a little younger. And so I'm not super, you know, elderly compared to them. Uh, That was a weird way of saying it. But how how old are your kids? My kids are like 10 and six and five. Um, And so that's another thing. I mean, I haven't raised fully functioning adults yet, you know, so I'm, I'm still learning a lot myself. Uh, But, but a lot of these folks are kind of my peers. And so that makes it a little bit challenging too, because you're talking to your friends and in some ways I'm like, okay, well, let me show you how to do this. So there's just a lot of dynamics there. Um, but I mean, they receive it well. And, uh, I just, I know that a lot of them are struggling and it's really hard to kind of put your finger on things that are very intuitive for people and very much like the daily rhythm of their life. And it's not necessarily like a, you know, in kind of Christian terms, like this is sinful. It's just more like, Hey, this, this probably isn't, working for you. Uh, this isn't coming from the right place, or maybe you don't realize how this is, you know, affecting this child. And, you know, let me help you see that. So, yeah, yeah. There, that may be too vague. There's this, there's a certain tendency in maybe just American life, but I think in just maybe a modern life altogether to, um, mind our own business. Yes. And, yes. but then we're sort of left to figure everything out yes, on our own. That's absolutely right. And, and so I think it, it sounds pretty cool to me that, people in your con- congregation could get some reflection on on their parenting where normally they might have to like opt into like paying some sort of family therapist to mm-hmm. to bother with that and even then most people don't do that unless something is really, really broken yeah and, and most family therapists probably aren't capable like trained or capable to step in unless things are really broken like that's what they sort of specialize in mm-hmm. so the idea of like getting some coaching or reflection on your, your parenting from another person sounds uh like kind of useful and undervalued maybe. Yeah. Well, I mean, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the loss of these mediating institutions. I mean, this was much more common in the past and this is not, I'm not trying to look back at some golden age of American history. I'm just saying we've seen this loss of these mediating institutions and a lot of people are raising families now who didn't have functioning families that they grew up in. 
and don't have a community that they belong to where this sort of thing takes place. And so all we're left with is sort of like Google and YouTube and books. And, and those are our new meeting institutions. That's right. And, they, and they're not like completely YouTube. unhelpful, yeah. but they it's not the same as having people look on your life and being able to speak into it. Well, maybe if you start adding in like these Google, like Siri, like these Amazon That's Alexa right. stuff, yeah. and you AI. add that to, to Alexa, <laughs> and add that to YouTube, you know, they can watch your family and then recommend the right videos for you. Yes, I mean, you're joking, but I'm. there's someone working on that somewhere. Probably. <laughs> yeah. So, so authority, parenting, that's, a, that's maybe a big thing that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, uh, if I could keep answering that question. Cool. I think I'm, that's a great, uh, great line of, of conversation for us to mine. Yeah. Another thing, and I'm not sure I have a lot of great answers here, is, and it's, it's just hard not to be thinking about this in our day and age, is just the sort of political situation and particularly where the church fits into this larger political moment with um with trump and with the polarization of our society and then with a lot of the social issues that are um i think getting much more attention than they have in the past um racial tension um black lives matter um a lot of the police shootings that i think have been going on for a long time but are finally being um seen by the world um I think all those, all those social issues and the political ramifications of them is always got me thinking, what does it mean for us as Christians to live faithfully in this time? Um, how do we relate to the larger political conversation? Is that, should we even be focused on the big picture or should we more be more focused on like the, just the local situation and mm -hmm. How are we learning to love and serve our neighbors and know them and listen to them and see things we're not seeing about our own lives that might be perpetuating injustice? And I mean, there's just, that's not really a very clear answer, but I, I'm, I'm always kind of thinking. Well, well you, you just told me that the questions you were, you were dealing with, like not the answers you had arrived yeah. at, and maybe that is the more important thing. Sure, sure, yeah. Those are definitely the questions I'm wrestling with, and I don't have a lot of good answers there. I have some answers, like I think the way that um, our country largely is engaged in political dialogue is is something Christians cannot be imitating. Like, or I say imitating, we can't be engaged in the conversation in the way so many of us Christians are engaged in that conversation. Um, and so, what does it mean for us to um, speak the truth? Um, you know, a lot of people, I think that just means that we have the right to just lambast people we disagree with. And I think there's got to be a lot of work on the part of Christians to learn to speak with charity uh, and grace and listen and learn to be very careful with our thoughts and be slow to speak. Um, because I think just the, the polarized language of so much conversation today, whether it's social media or otherwise, is just unhelpful and destructive. And it's just pulling, it's pulling everybody apart. Does that have a biblical basis? Oh yeah. I mean, Proverbs is filled with, you know, wise sayings about being careful in how we speak, being slow to speak, being, um, 
uh, able to hear both sides of, of an issue, um, not being rushing to judgment, you know, and the fool just is spouting off at the mouth and uh, is, is using provocative language that brings anger to the other person rather than peace, you know. Um, and the New Testament is filled with that, having language that's not filled with malice or rage. Um, Jesus talking about seeing this, this log in our own eye before we try to pull out the speck in someone else's. And so that there's a sort of self-criticalness that we need when we're talking with other people. And I just, I think the church in America, it falls into a lot of what we were talking about earlier, this sort of, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys mentality mm-hmm. instead of we're, we are the part of the world that is starting to see that we're broken. And how do we start dealing with our stuff? What does it mean that we're forgiven? How does this begin to help us live in the world in a different way? And I think there's a way that that can be done in a fake way too. Mm -hmm. Like when you use the fact that you're being self-critical as a way to then raise yourself up over other people. And this is what I see a lot of secular activists, which I think inherit from Christianity (laughs) and basically erase the God part. But but, um, in a way, I think they're continuing some of that Christian tradition of self-criticality, which I, th- which is, which is virtuous, but there's always a social pressure to then use that to gain, to raise your status and to punish others who aren't following along with you. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's tricky to get right. Yeah. It's tricky to be really humble and not show humble. Yeah. Like there, there's like this fine line between virtue and virtue signaling. Yes. And, um, but virtue just doesn't signal. That's the thing. That, that's the fine line. Right, because Jesus There's, says, like, pray in private and yeah. not, not on the street corner. Yeah. The signaling part, to, uh, I need to show everyone I'm on the right side of this issue. There's just no reason for that. If you're on the right side of the issue, then okay. Like, go, go, go live on that side of the issue and live it out. But the, the constant need to project to everyone that we're on the right side of this issue, you know. Mm-hmm is, uh, and Christians are just as guilty as everybody else of this. It's just problematic, you know. So I see you engaging a little bit with politics on like Facebook. I think less on Twitter. I don't think I've seen you tweet. Maybe you've, you've had a, a little bit of engagement with some political topics on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you going about engaging with people on social media? Yeah, I actually wrote a blog post um, about how I use Twitter because I think we need to reflect carefully on what we're trying to do with that medium. If you don't, you end up just participating in, I think, a lot of dysfunctional behavior. And even if you think critically about it, you can still engage in a dysfunctional, unhealthy, unloving way. Um, I, I, uh, I've got a blog post on it, but I'll try to remember like some of the main points I bring out there. I, I think Twitter's a great platform, and um, I think it's really valuable for being exposed to people and ideas I would not normally run across. I think it's a really great way to see quick reactions to things going on, whether it's the World Cup or a conference I'm going to or some event somewhere. You can just see minute by minute reactions, you know, and that has downsides, but it's got some beautiful upsides to it. Um, And then Twitter allows you to interact with people that you might not ever meet. And you can just immediately at someone and try to engage with, with what they're doing and talking about. And sometimes they'll talk back. And that's a really beautiful thing. So there's great aspects to it. Um, And so I try to use Twitter to persuade 
Uh, that's part of what I'm doing. I, I try to put stuff out there that makes people think differently than they would normally think. Um, to expose people to ideas or resources or uh, books or articles or videos or whatever that they may not come across. Um, but I also use it to try to listen to people I don't easily come in contact with and see what they're putting out there and, and listen to those ideas. Um, and sometimes I've used it to try to critically push back on people that I think are, are missing something. And I think you have to be careful how you do that. There's a way to do that that's signaling, but there's a way to do that that's really trying to put a fine point on things and and push against arguments. Or, and I don't think that's inappropriate done in the right way. Um, but there's a number of behaviors I just think are problematic. So I see a lot of um, people like quote tweeting someone who says something nice about them, you know? So it's like, mm -hmm. oh, so thankful that you said that about me, you know? And it's like, you're broadcasting to all your followers what someone else said about you. I mean, to me, that's just, that's just bragging. Like, yeah, it's like it's personal marketing. Yeah, it's weird behavior, you know, and it's there's nothing about that that can be coming from like I think a healthy and good place. Um, I think it's better just reply thank you or something like that. But to quote tweet something like that is to sort of promote yourself, and um, that's not good for the soul. I don't think. Hmm. Um, quote tweeting someone to bash them that that's another problematic thing. Like um, you should just reply to them with your criticism and not like quote tweet tweet them and then say like look at how terrible this person is. It, I mean, there's a there are times when I think quote tweeting someone to make a criticism. If you're quote tweeting something to your followers. To, to sort of show this idea is problematic and here's why. I mean, there there can be a place for that. I mean, mm -hmm. think about writing a, a blog post. You might pull in your opponent's ideas in order to criticize them. That's, that's not totally inappropriate. But a lot of times, quote tweeting is just a passive-aggressive way of tearing someone down and not actually talking to that person. Um, so I think that's problematic. Sounds like, like sounds like quote tweeting is the most problematic piece of the UI. It's a, it's a big one. Although, I mean, just replying, people troll all the time. You know, you yeah. just, someone quotes, tweets something and you just reply in, in a really derogatory, dismissive way or uh, misrepresent them. I mean, you can, you can be very antagonistic. So that's problematic. Um, and then one thing that, I don't know how common this isn't for a lot of Twitter users, but I, I see a lot among Christian pastors, which is just weird, is guys who sort of, try to show that they're they know famous people or they're they know a group of people and look i'm on the inside and they'll do that by tagging several friends and being like hey it was great to see you guys and it's like mm. just text them just tell them it was great to see you you know like why are you doing, doing, that? doing it in public so people you, can see that you met them that's right mm. and had a great time with so-and-so today it's like okay why are you telling us this like so that we know you know this person like that's just self-promotion yeah so there's a lot of i think dangers with that sort of platform but there's a lot of great things about it and so i think i try i'm not saying i do this perfectly i try to be careful in how i use it to appreciate and benefit from the good parts of it and then to try to avoid some of the things that i think are ultimately a reflection of like vice in my life <laughs> yeah i think for um for social media to have a more positive effect on the world that designers will have to down the line start making products with usage more in mind or healthy usage more in mind and that's just not something that we're seeing right now like everything's designed for maximum engagement and um and i think that people burn out on that if it if, if a platform has unhealthy engagement um after a few years uh, i think people are getting really sick of twitter 
and I'd like to see, I don't know how to do it, um, but I'd like to see platforms designed more with healthy usage patterns in mind. Yeah, I would too, um, but I'm really stuck on how that might work. Um, you know, in, Christians believe God has made the world good, and so the world is good, and the things that we make, are they're, they are inherently good, but we can misuse everything. And Christians, and I would say actually everybody, has a tendency to try to divide the world up into good and bad, whether it's people or even things. And so like Christians have said in the past, some Christians, you know, alcohol's bad, you know, it's just bad. And then this over here is okay. Uh, like sweet tea is, is good. Alcohol is bad, right? And so we avoid alcohol and then we get diabetes, right? The, the reality is everything God's made and all the stuff that creatures cultivate, you know, invent, there are good and bad uses of it. And I'm not sure. I think we can, we can take little steps to maybe make the design features sort of push us in certain directions. And I think there's validity and choice architecture. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's the right way to use that. But um, at the end of the day, people will always find ways to misuse stuff. And we, we always are in this battle of how do we find the right way to use stuff that is toward love and is good for our souls. <laughs> so ultimately, it's the individual's responsibility to use the tools in a good way. Well, individuals maybe and their communities. Uh, I don't know. And and I don't I'm not trying to downplay the importance of good and thoughtful design because that does matter. I mean, uh, the way we build the world and construct it does point us in directions. So that's that's not meaningless. It's just that that will never I think there's a myth in modernity that we can organize and structure society in a way that there won't be any problems if we just think about it long enough and and we, we can come up with that utopia. And it's yeah. like, well, that won't ever happen. I, th I think that's the the thing that first moved me from libertarianism to like a more conservative heterodoxy was that I think libertarians believe that if you get the rules of the world right, then everything will be okay. And that like the people you put in, into those rules don't matter. And in conservatism, in the conservative tradition in America, I found more of this idea that um, individual virtue is actually the guarantee of liberty. Mm -hmm. Like people, um, like to the degree that people are personally virtuous and act well towards themselves and towards their community and support themselves and support their community, then you don't need as many rules. And, and when I started running into that idea, it, it made some sense to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't believe anymore that like the, having the right laws or the right framework was all you needed to get a good society. Like I, I do believe there's also some need to, to be personally virtuous yeah. and take some responsibility on yourself yeah. and on the morals in your community. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, so we've been talking like about an hour mm -hmm. and, and I'd, I'd like to, I guess we should wrap up like somewhat soon. Okay. Um, I'd like to ask you, I had one question on my mind, which is what do you think of the health of the Christian community in the world today? Like, like spirituality is declining, people are, the church is declining overall. Um, like how healthy do you think the, the church is or the Christian community? Oh man, that's a tough question. I, I don't know if Christianity is declining worldwide. 
Um, I'm not sure about that. My my understanding is that there's rapid growth of the church in the global south. Mm-hmm. Um, what many people are saying that I, I've read uh, is that the center of Christianity is shifting to something more like Brazil or, or uh, Central Africa. Um, the church in China is growing like crazy, from what I understand. Now, there's also a, an uptick in the government cracking down there recently. But um, So I don't know if the church is declining, but mm-hmm. uh, in the West it is, and uh, part of that is um, just people not having as many babies, and part of that is um, churches just losing the children that they do have um, by massive numbers. You know, the, the model that a lot of churches have employed of youth group and sort of segregating people into different age groups and then you know by the time they get to college maybe they'll start joining the big church and then they don't and they walk away i mean there's a a lot of people bleeding out you know um what do i think is the state of the health of the church well in one sense i'm confident that that christ is building his church and it's a mystery to me how he's doing that and i'm not privy to all the ways that that's taking place but i i believe that the gospel is still going forth and people are trusting in Jesus and coming under his lordship and learning to live in the world in a new way. And in the West, I think we're having to re-understand our place in the culture. Um, I've, I've been in churches that didn't want to do this. They wanted to fight for their privilege in the culture and continue operating as if um, we were in the mainstream and we had a place of importance in the culture. Whereas I'm sort of in the place where I say, look, we are, uh, marginalized now increasingly we're not trusted we've lost that trust I think we need to acknowledge that that we've in, in large part we're responsible for that loss of trust and we need to understand what it looks like to be the church outside of the halls of power um, and we need to be learning what it means to have communities that are forming people of character and uh, and not trust in a lot of other institutions to be forming character like they maybe were in the past like something like Boy Scouts and I'm not well, maybe that's a bad thing to bring up, but uh, for other reasons. But Boy Scouts used to be something a lot of people were involved in, and that was, you know they taught sort of basic, you know, character that people would have generally celebrated. And and you may not have been in church, you maybe were going to the Boy Scouts, but we could kind of think, oh, they're they're kind of forming people to to hold the sorts of virtues that we think are important, you know. Mm-hmm. But less and less do I think the church can just say, oh yeah, you'll go be involved in that institution, and you'll come out with a sort of character and concerns that we think you should have as a Christian. And so we've got to look at our own institutions and re-examine how we're structuring our life together and if it's helping us become the type of people we think we need to be. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. These are, these are I'm kind of all I over think the place it, here. I think it does. I think uh, what you said about like the church not having a privileged position in Western society makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like it certainly feels like it's it's not you can't assume that that it's mainstream anymore and a lot of times when people like they insist that we're a christian country like the easy objection answer to that is like says who uh it it doesn't it it carries less and less weight uh, and it will carry less and less weight going forward Mm -hmm. Um, i like the like the niche that you're marking out as like institutions that form personal virtue i think there is a large demand for that as the institutions that used to do that collapse or change um, or 
like if, if that is a vision that the, that your church has or that the church has, I think it will do well. Um, I think what I see in my circles is a lot of people are really turned on by Jordan Peterson's message of personal responsibility and getting your life together. And he has sort of this Christian flavor to it. And so a lot of them then go and will visit a church and say, like, I'm looking for that. Like, I'm looking for that thing, like someone that's going to a community that's going to help me get my life together and live a virtuous life. And then they don't really find it. Um, like they, they, they'll find a church that is performing the rituals, but, but where the community fabric really isn't there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they get kind of disappointed and they realize like this thing doesn't really exist that I'm looking for. Yeah. And, but, but I think people are, are dreaming into the need for this. They're, they're wanting, they're wanting this. Yeah. I, so I, w- I can say that in large part, the American church, and I'll, I'll say this, the white American church has completely sold out to sort of market capitalistic sort of structures and formation. Um, the churches that largely the churches that are growing in this country are churches that um, uh, they brand well. They create an experience that's very easy for people to enter into that gives them some sort of thing they're looking for, encouragement, positive messages, maybe even content that is, in fact, biblical. But it's structured in, in such a way that it's all about like you coming and consuming. Like there's not a high commitment level. Um, you know, they might call you to serve in some ways, but it's always sort of fitting into like your lifestyle, you know, it's essentially a, a consumeristic church, right? And you've, you've got to have a very charismatic speaker, leadership, cool branding, good music, and an easy entry sort of uh, style. Those churches are growing and they will continue to grow because that's America, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. like you're creating a good franchise. And that's exactly what's happening. You'll see churches that do that well, then they they kind of create these franchises in the surrounding area. And we have that here in North Carolina. Um, so churches that are doing that are going to continue to exist. Um, they're going to change their message, I think, over time as it becomes harder to stake out like a maybe an orthodox um, set of beliefs and do that and be able to have the sort of easy access to properties they want to buy or rent, you know, but point is that those are going to exist, but faithful Orthodox communities that are actually communities with high commitment that are doing the sort of virtue formation that you're talking about. Um, they're going to be smaller. They are going to exist. I think they exist all over, but they're, they're not going to be found easily. (laughs) Um, and I, I think that's a shame, but I have to trust that the Lord's at work. Yeah. I I don't think the two, have to be in conflict um, just because I sense that there is this market demand for um, for virtue formation like that's pretty large and and I, th- I just think that maybe in like a lot of young men especially seem to just want things to be demanded of them like there is this larger demand for I think a church that is not demanding where you can dip your toe in and be entertained and feel good about yourself. But I think there's also a demand for a demanding church. And, and I think people just haven't quite put, the people who are capable of building churches haven't quite put their finger on that yet. 
Like I see people in my peer group uh, who are very highly educated, uh, very open to experience, new experiences, very, um, very intellectual people doing things like flirting with, flirting with military service because it's like the last institution that can build, mm -hmm. can build, um, uh, that can builds character. Yeah, and and a lot of a lot of them, and I don't know that anybody actually does, or very few people actually go through with that but like that's the kind of thing that people are interested in like there's a lot of people with no military background that are listening to the Jocko podcast mm -hmm. because Jocko is someone that I mean he's you cannot question his his virtue and like his manliness in a in a very effective humble yet um yet assertive kind of way and mm -hmm. like people want People want to be, become, especially young men, want to become more than they are. Yeah, they want fathers. <laughs> that's what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, they, and, they and we want to become capable of fatherhood ourselves. Right. Yeah, yep. And and so I, maybe the church can do that. I hope so. I mean, that's what it should be doing. Um, I'm skeptical that the sort of consumeristic church um, that I was trying to describe can do that because um, inherently consumerism is focused on the consumer getting their preferences met and um, the sort of formation that I'm talking about runs directly against that so that I don't think those things are compatible I think that um, yeah I, I don't think those things are compatible I think that people will want what you're describing but still not realize how formed by consumerism they are so it's like, I want a church like that. I really want a church that's going to challenge me and all that. But it's got to be with like people who dress a certain way and people that can kind of get me and understand my intellectual level or know my experiences. And I don't want to have to drive over there. And, you know, like there's still all these sort of, there's like a list of things that it's still got to be like mm -hmm. this in order for me to really sign on to that. And that's to it, me. It's got to have an app. It has to have 24-7 yeah. sermon delivery on my schedule. Yeah. yeah. So I think the desire is there. The question is, you know, how does that get, how does that bridge take place? Cause you still are going to have to overcome the fact that we've all been formed to live as consumers. Everything in our lives is sort of open to our consumer tastes. And that's, we've just, we're just used to living that way. I can make choices every day about this or that, this or that, this or that. And I'm always finding the best deal for me. It's very hard to undo that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that, that question went in a direction I didn't quite expect at first, but now. It's good. That means we're having a living conversation. There we go. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm trying to figure out if there's anything anything we should do to wrap up. Any, any last topic we should hit. Well, if anybody's looking for a church like that, then tell them to come to Winston-Salem. Winston-Salem, North Carolina? Yeah, and hopefully that's something that is what, happening what, at our church. In which church should they go to? Trinity Church. Trinity Winston-Salem, yeah. That's a good name. Yeah, well, we, we didn't really come up with it. but <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, I think that's a good place to stop. Okay. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy talking with you. These are great, great conversations. Yeah, it's great to talk to you, Derek. Yeah. Um, and we're off.